Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and it's January 25th. Healthcare investor extraordinaire Todd Campbell is Skyping into full headquarters. Todd, did you see the big Dow news this morning? Unbelievable, right? I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago we'd be we'd be where we are today at Dow 20,000? 20,000 as of this morning. And, you know, I think if you've been watching it lately, you probably could have seen this coming. The Dow's been rising since the election of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States. There's been lots of business people appointed to the cabinet, such as the CEO of ExxonMobil, for example. And even this morning, the Dow opened at 19,994. So we all know it's just a matter of time. Right. The, co- the concept of deregulation and potentially lower corporate tax rates providing some additional tailwinds. But again, like anything, right, Christine, it's the power of compounding, right? Over time, if the market grows at a 4 to 6% annual rate, you're going to eclipse these milestones uh, decade after decade after decade. So it's a great reminder to investors um, who look back on on the Great Recession and, and were extremely nervous that the next time we go through one of those hiccups, uh, to just take a deep breath and just keep focusing on that long-term plan. Absolutely. And in honor of the event, I just wanted to share a little bit of history about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So, what it is, is a price-weighted average of 30 large American publicly traded companies. And it is the most well-known index of the United States stock market. It actually dates all the way back to 1896, when a guy named Charles Dow uh, was involved in the creation of it. So, Todd, here's a little bit of trivia for you. Do you know the only one of the original 12 companies to still be on the index today? Oh, God. Um, General Electric? Yeah, that's it. I I was going to give you the hint that it was the industrial average to see if maybe that would help, but yeah, you got it on your own. So um, it was pretty tough. I had to I had to really go back in time. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Yeah, 1896, not quite. Um, So actually, of the five companies that we plan on talking about today, two of them are actually on this index. Um, We'll be talking a little bit about Merck and Bristol Myers Squibb and some uh, patent infringement lawsuit uh, business that has gone on with the two of them. We'll also be talking about Johnson Johnson, touching on their earnings, just because we gave you a pre review, I believe, last week. So, why not check back in this week? And then, towards the end of the show, we will also talk about two health insurers, Aetna and Humana. And so, of those five, the two that are in the index are uh, Merck and, as I'm sure is not surprising, Johnson & Johnson. But let's kick it off with Merck and also Bristol-Myers. Some very interesting news here this week, Christine. I mean, wouldn't you like to be able to add nine figures in revenue just with the stroke of a pen? Yeah, that would be nice. My bank account would love it. And that's essentially what's happened here with Bristol-Myers and Merck. Uh, Essentially, these two companies have settled a patent dispute, uh, Bristol-Myers coming out on top. Merck has now agreed to give them a pile of money up front to make up for uh, royalties that they hadn't been paying for infringing on the patent. And according to the settlement, Merck is going to give uh, Bristol Myers, a healthy six and a half percent dividend, or from here until I think it's 2023, and then another two and a half percent from 2024 to 2026. Yep, and that's so, specifically on one drug um, named Optivo. 
Yeah, in or Octavio and Keytruda. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Keytruda, um, which is the, the both these drugs work in this. We'll call it the same way. Uh, they target a protein uh, called the PD1, which is um, expressed on T cells, in which cancer cells sneakily use to evade the immune system's detection. Right. And this is a completely novel way of treating cancer, which is why you have Bristol-Myers saying here, hey, wait, you've infringed upon the patent that, that we have. And so um, this will effectually end all of the patent infringement litigation against Merck's Keytruda. And as you mentioned, Bristol will get a whole pile of money to make up for the past, and then they'll get royalties going forwards. And the payments will actually be split 75% to Bristol-Myers and 25% to a company called Ono Pharmaceutical, O-N-O. It's a Japanese partner on the drug. But this is still a very hefty sum for Bristol-Myers. Right. Uh, Christine, they're getting, uh, I think it's $625 million right up front. Hey, Merry Christmas. Here's, here's $625 million. Um, and then, you know, if you look at the, the potential market opportunity for these checkpoint inhibitors, these PD-1 drugs, it's tr- it's huge. I mean, these are billion, billions and billions of dollar drugs. And, um, you know, just out of the gate, uh, assuming no additional growth on Keytruda, uh, you'd be looking at uh, r- right around $100 million in royalty stream heading toward uh, Bristol. Right. So this is huge news. And most likely the drug will continue to expand to making it even bigger and bigger news going forwards. And that six and a half percent royalty will last all the way through the end of 2023. Right. And, and you, you talked a little you just mentioned the ability to expand. And, um, you know, a lot of cancers use this PD-1 to escape detection. And at, what they're finding is that as they do more and more trials in different types of cancer, that these drugs are very effective, you know, very high response rates in uh, in patients. And there's, there, this was especially interesting to see them come to this agreement um, because in the last year or so, both drugs, Opdivo and Keytruda, have had, kind of diverged in, in what's happened in their clinical trials with, with Merck having a lot of success in uh, Bristol-Myers, mostly in my view, because of the way they design their trials, having um, less success, especially right. in lung cancer. This is something that we have talked about on a previous episode of Industry Focus, so our longtime listeners will hopefully remember. But it basically had to do, as you mentioned, with the trial design, where uh, Optivo failed its trial in which it was looking at pretty much all levels of PD-1 expression, 5% and above, as opposed to when they looked, they did the Keytruda study, it was 50% PD-1 expression and above. And of course, it's a drug that works on PD-1. So if you're targeting patients that have a higher expression of it, you're tilting the odds in your favor. Yeah, it's almost like Merck went the safe route and Bristol-Myers tried to jump the shark. Right, and, and it backfired by going a the bit. safe route, they were able to nab an FDA approval for the use of Keytruda in the first line setting for high expressing PDL uh, patients. And what's really interesting is that they also have recently filed for first line use of Keytruda plus chemotherapy in patients who don't express PD1 after seeing some pretty solid trials. So if if Bristol Myers had maybe either designed the trials so that it was only high-expressing patients initially, or had combined it with chemotherapy, who 
who knows if Keytruda would have the advantage in non, in uh, lung cancer heading into 2017 um, versus Optivo. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I, I think Bristol-Myers, that probably made Bristol-Myers a little bit more willing to uh, agree to you know that royalty stream because they looked at it and they said, well, if we can't get the first line and the first line could be worth some, some estimates are a billion dollars, um, at least maybe we can share in some of Keytruda's success. Absolutely. It is not a bad consolation prize. So I mentioned- No, and it's all high margin money, right? I mean, they're not going yeah, to produce anything. Mm-hmm. They already produced the IP for it. Yep. That's money in the pocket. So let's move on and touch back on Johnson Johnson earnings, which we did a preview of last week. Todd, what was the report like? All right. So last week we had talked about a couple different things. And one of the things that had jumped out to us or one of the things we wanted to, to make sure everybody was aware of was the potential threat to Johnson & Johnson's best-selling drug Remicade, which is used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, which is lost pet, and, and that drug has lost patent protection and is facing now uh, a biosimilar that works similarly to it and that launched in November. So we were very curious to see what's going to happen with Remicade sales. And sure enough, uh, Johnson Johnson went from growing almost 10% year over year in the U.S. for Remicade in the third quarter to actually losing ground on Remicade uh, year over year in the fourth quarter. Sales fell 1.7% in the U.S. for Remicade to $1.17 billion, where in Q3 they rose 9.4% to $1.22 billion. Yeah, before you specified in the U.S., I was, I was actually going to ask you for that clarification, just because there is a, a good amount of difference here regarding this drug between what's going on inter- internationally versus in the United States. Internationally, the biosimilar has been on the markets in Europe for a while, a long enough time that, as they put it in, in the earnings report itself, they are continuing to see the impact of biosimilar competition. But it's in the U.S. that we just recently, at the end of last year, saw the biosimilar come uh, to, to be approved by the FDA. So, it was interesting to me the discrepancy between the numbers that you just reported, where you saw that decline, versus yeah. the quote from the earnings call, where management said, we have not observed any significant impact to date. And that was referring to the impact of the biosimilar in Flectra on Remicade. Right. And I think that they can make probably make that argument by saying, OK, well, we haven't lost necessarily any market share. But remember that in order to protect their market share, they're having to cut the price yep. and offer greater discounts, which, of course, is going to weigh on their ability to generate out sales growth. And even with competing heavily on uh, price, if you go and listen to that conference call and get all the way to the question and answer section, uh, management did sort of tip their hand and say that they could perhaps see lose 10 to 15% in the first year of market share. So, you know, Remicade being Johnson Johnson's biggest drug, a drug with, you know, I think it's 4.4 billion run rate uh, in the United States alone, you know, losing market share is going to create a headwind uh, that could keep its sales depressed in 2017. It's not a disaster by any source. I mean, they still think that they can grow sales and profit by 3% this year. But I mean, 3% probably not going to get too many people overly excited about this company. Right. And interestingly, the pharmaceutical segment has historically been what drives this company forward. But in this past quarter, the consumer product segment, that's your Listerine, your Band-Aids, things that you would buy at a a CVS, that actually led the way. Their sales were up 3.4%. Particularly when you look domestically, sales were up 13% in that unit. 
Yeah, consumer though, I, I don't know. I, I look at it over the course of a, a trailing 12 month period and consumer because you just don't know what's happening with people building up wholesale inventories and that type of thing. Um, and if you look at for the full year, sales had declined one and a half percent from 2015. So I think what we'll need to do is sort of watch and see how that plays out over the course of the next few quarters and see if they're still delivering that kind of growth. If they are, great, that's awesome news. Um, but I think that again, you know, as we talked about, they get the majority of their revenue from the pharmaceutical area. And while they've got some intriguing stuff that could help offset some of the headwinds to Remicade, um, you know, this is just, it's going to be an evolving story throughout 2017, no question. For sure. So, um, anything else that you want to touch on with J&J earnings before we move on to our last well, story there of the day? Were, yeah, there was one bright spot that I want to call out and I think that investors should be aware of, and that was the performance of Darzalex, which is their new multiple myeloma drug. Uh, that launched back in late 2015 for use in the fourth line setting. So pretty far back in patient treatment. But as we moved in towards the end of the year, um, that's that's one approval now for use alongside Revlimid in the second line setting, which in Revlimid, of course, is the granddaddy in, in multiple myeloma with $8 billion in projected sales this year. Darzlex sales in the fourth quarter were $200 million. That gives it an 800 million run rate. That's not bad for a drug that only la- launched a, a, you know, a year and a couple months ago. And it certainly could indicate that this is their next multi-billion, their next billion dollar blockbuster drug. This drug definitely has some momentum. And overall, Johnson Johnson did deliver right around expectations. The one area that they fell a little bit short was in their 2017 guidance. Right now, we're looking at anticipated sales of 74.1 to 74.8 billion, which I believe you mentioned a little bit earlier is about four to five percent growth. Um, they had been expecting 75.1 billion going into the report, but there's still a lot to shake out in 2017, and that's not a, a huge miss right there. So, uh, lots to keep your eye on still with Johnson Johnson. And last story of the day was something that just came out earlier this week which is that the Humana-Aetna merger was blocked by a district court. And this was a $37 billion merger within the health insurance industry that a lot of people had their eye on. We talked earlier about how the Dow Jones was eclipsing 20,000, partially because of deregulation. Apparently, uh, the Department of Justice, the district court judge, didn't get that memo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, the Department of Justice basically has cried foul on this deal. Uh, they cried foul a while back, saying that by combining these two very large players in Medicare Advantage, it would cause uh, a big problem to pricing and access to health insurance within markets where they overlap. You know, all these two companies, uh, Aetna and Humana, attempted to try and um, assuage uh, the judge by agreeing to sell some assets to another company called Molina Health. However, when push came to shove and the judge looked at all the uh, the different puts and takes, he determined that the risk was just far too great in that Medicare Advantage segment uh, to go ahead and approve the, the combination of these two big companies. Right. When you look at the Medicare Advantage market, these are two of the three largest players, with United Healthcare being the other one. 
And this is a huge market. 31% of people on Medicare are enrolled in Medicare Advantage. And it's growing, too. The number of people enrolled in these private plans has tripled between 2004 and 2016. So the thinking is that with these companies combining, there would just there's nothing that could happen. No new competitors, no divestitures, nothing that would avoid the competitive issues that would come up. And essentially, the the verdict came down to no matter what happens here, they should have just competed independently to win more customers rather than trying to get together to have that bigger negotiating power and and win that way. So right, because it's not Christine. It's not like we're talking about um, a, a product that you can buy on Amazon, right? In in regardless of what county you live in or what state or what town or whatever, you know these insurance programs, the plans are not offered the same in every community. They can be very different in different companies can participate in those different communities. So you have very different competitive marketplaces within each specific county or town um, throughout the nation. And I think the, the big risk was that, okay, you consolidate power of these two uh, very large players, turning it into the biggest player in Medicare Advantage. What happens in those communities that say are underserved, that maybe United Healthcare isn't currently participating in, or that there aren't any other options? And if if you have that kind of a situation, give that much pricing power over something as important as health insurance to these insurers, uh, who's to say that they're going to act in the best interest of of the the patient and compete and drive those prices down? Exactly. So moving forward with these companies, Aetna will owe Humana a $1 billion breakup fee. Interestingly, neither stock really moved a ton. And what I think will be the key thing to watch here after we already have seen this news report, is what happens with the merger between Cigna and Anthem. There will be a ruling on that one soon, and these are another two health insurance companies. It's an even bigger deal. It's $48 billion, and they have even more national overlap. So definitely want to keep your eyes on that one. Yeah, I don't think there's a very good shot at that deal going through. I mean, I think Cigna and Anthem haven't put even forward as as good a united front as Humana and Aetna did. So, you know, I'd be... Well, I'll be surprised, I guess, if if they go ahead and approve this. Listen, the, the Medicare Advantage market specifically is growing, and it's big, and it's growing by about a million different people, uh, new new subscribers annually. So this is a lucrative business that I think is still attractive for these companies independently. Um, obviously, Humana gets the, is is the the most pure play of all four of these insurers, they get the majority of their sales from their Medicare Advantage business. Uh, So if you're interested in, I guess, a stock idea that would allow you to grow from, benefit from the fact that, you know, you've got aging baby boomers who are gonna be increasingly going into the marketplace and looking at their different Medicare options, um, maybe Humana is a name that should be back on your radar. So looking more broadly at the healthcare insurance industry, do you think that Humana and the Medicare Advantage market would be the way to play this? Or you know, if you could only buy one health insurer, is that what it would be? I Well, the thing that's nice about that is you don't have the risk of what's going on with the ACA. You know, yes, Humana has some participation to ACA programs, but it gets the bulk of its sales through Medicare Advantage. And Medicare Advantage isn't impacted by uh, the reform that's that's the repeal and replace of of Obamacare or the ACA. So you could look at it and say, well, the demographics support it. It's not as exposed to the risk of what could come in the future in this industry. So you know, it's it's definitely one of the more intriguing plays now that it's 
going to be on its own. All right. Thanks so much, Todd. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against these stocks. So don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. That's a wrap for today's show. Until next time, Fool on! Fool on!